Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> it's entitled The Preacher. You might just as well almost entitle it Futility, because it essentially is about the ultimate futility of human existence, unless there's something beyond. <clears throat> and certainly it is written from the standpoint of human thought about human life. Uh, not a lot is mentioned about anything beyond that, because his focus was to gnaw on that particular bone. And he gnaws it from several different directions and comes back to the same bone several times during this uh, book. Well, even if he ever really leaves it, uh, it's truly about human life and the trials, troubles, tribulations, futility, and the death thereof, which leaves you right back before you were born. Nothingness. Uh, dead. And what goes on in between is certainly temporary, and he uses the term vanity to describe it, because it is a vain thing to think that we can build anything on this earth that will last or do any good in the future. Let's review for a moment verse 24 of chapter 2, where he had made a, let's say, a mini-conclusion here in his uh, march through <laughs> the throes of human struggles. He says there's nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. All of our plans, all of our big deals, we might be able to accomplish to one degree or another, but it takes a lot of trial and effort and difficulty in achieving whatever physical goals we might set for ourselves, and then it's over. You know, you, you have a career. You grow up from childhood, and then you have maybe 40 years of basically productive time in which you can raise a family, make a living, whatever you decide to do, and then you start the decline. Uh, well, it starts earlier than 60, but it doesn't get pronounced until you get up in the 60s and 70s, it seems, and then it comes rather quickly. But he says to make your soul enjoy your labor. If you ask most people on the street if they like their job, if they get up eager to go to work in the morning and want to be there, most will say no. They want something different. They may not even know what, but they want something different than what they have. And if they change jobs, it's still them doing the job, so they come to despise the new job the way they did the old job. Because we are not content, it seems, as human beings, whatever we find ourselves in. And Paul told us, same thing that Solomon is saying here, whatever state yourself you find yourself in, therein be content. Maybe that includes California, I don't know. Uh, that's a joke, but... <laughs> Sort of. But happiness and contentment is a state of the mind, not a state of the union. And we have to come to be content within ourselves, our own mind and emotional uh, framework, or we will not be happy anywhere we happen to be, or wherever we might want to go. So you have to make your soul enjoy good in your labor. Find ways to feel productive, to feel uh, 
that you're doing some good in some way and enjoy what you can produce. Most Americans, it seems, put in the time. I'll just be here. I'll do what I have to to get by so I can get my check and enjoy my weekends. And that's pretty much the existence of people today. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. God put us here to labor, to work, to go through that as part of the experience here on this earth, and to find contentment and enjoyment in whatever work we do. Your employer will like you a whole lot better if you like your work and do a good job at it rather than just filling in the time. For who can eat or who else can hasten unto here more than I? Here was a man who had tried everything, who had everything. Uh, We're finding as we go through here more and more that he is frustrated and discontent with his life, with all that he's tried and done. And he says, who could enjoy more than just his labor, his family, his everyday life than I, who have been able to try everything that everyone else wanted to try, and perhaps couldn't because of circumstance or whatever, but he was not limited in any way. He says, For God gives to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, the things that Solomon had asked for, but to the sinner he gives travail to gather and to heap up. So somebody who is seeking gain or seeking wealth and We know how that generally works. It's at the expense of someone else. Not always. Sometimes people are very productive and come up with ideas that can produce great wealth without stepping on anyone else. But in the corporate world and in the human world at large, it's usually clambering over others to get up the ladder of success. And that is not a godly way. If you do what you should do and God chooses to promote you, that's on God. But if you make an effort to try to promote yourself in any other way, you'll come against God and you will find travail and difficulty. So he gives travail to gather and to heap that he may give to him that is good before God. So, see, if you heap something up, Ultimately, God is going to bless those who do good with the fruit of your labor instead of you being able to enjoy it. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's very difficult for people to draw to grow old and see their children or their grandchildren or business associates or whoever clamoring <clears throat> to receive what they have heaped up fighting over it, maybe even before they're dead, or certainly before the body is cold, uh, they're fighting over what you have left behind. And you can see it coming in most cases. And that, at the end of your life, is also a vexation. Solomon saw people jockeying for his position to try to be the next king, and uh, that had to be a vexation too, because God had given him what he had, And yet here were those who felt that they should be the next in line and they should take over. Uh, They were far more qualified, but 
God doesn't work that way. He promotes whom he will promote. So then let's get to chapter 3. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. And what he's about to explain here is that there are certain conditions that will occur, no matter what. And then he gives a whole list of them that cannot actually be avoided. There is a time for this and a time for that. And when that time is there, you need to be able to recognize what time it is. And in so doing, you're better prepared to handle whatever it is that you are dealing with. Let's get into that and see. We can, we can look at it on a human or a personal level. We can also look, it on, look at it on a church level and on a, an international level. That all of these conditions occur in the experience of man and even down to the experience of each individual. And if you don't recognize what the mode is or what time it is, then it creates a level of frustration in you when you're fighting against what is and what it is time for. I see a lot of that in the church right now. I don't mean necessarily here, but in the overall people who understand the truth of God. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Pretty easy one to see. Uh, Your mom is carrying you around. There's going to be a time to be born. And there's going to be, with that birth, the inevitable death, because it is appointed to all men once to die. Now, what we do in between those two times becomes very, very significant. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. In the spring, we sow seed, and in the fall, it's time to pluck out of the ground that which has grown. So there's a time to work at planting. There's a time to work at harvesting. And that could apply to a lot of different things that you might endeavor to do. There's a time to start it, and there's a time to end it. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. Now, God has decreed, let's apply this for a moment to the church. We are in a time to break down. That is what has been conferred upon the church of God over the last 20, well, 25 years, really, or more. A time to break down, or a time to kill that which has been, and regrow it in a different way at some time in the future. Now, let's see how this works. You have people out there in the various organizations who are trying to build a great work trying to resurrect that which God has killed, essentially. And they have great levels of frustration, don't they? Because they're trying to preach the gospel around the world. They're trying to build a big organization again and have a lot of people called and come and be part of it. And it's just not happening. Most of the movement is just from front door to back door of each group as they go looking for whatever it is they think they're missing from group to group, 
trying to find something better than what they currently have. And they are trying to build and to grow and to plant at a time to pluck, to kill, and to break down. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we might understand here that some are missing out on because they don't understand some of the Scriptures. And that, that, that this indeed is the time to break down what was. And if you're in line with that, you'll save yourself a lot of frustration. I do not have, at this moment, a, a uh, compelling to go out and preach the gospel to the world. I don't have a great uh, purpose in even doing it for the church at this time as well. We must be working on ourselves to discover what it is that caused God to break us down in the first place. And until we fix that we are not capable of spreading anything to the world around us or the church that is, that is worthwhile. How can we be peacemakers in the church if we cannot find peace within our own minds and within our own little group? We must come to peace with ourselves. And that's what occurs in a time of breaking down. As you try to figure out what it was that caused the breakdown, and then administer whatever is needed in order to resolve the problem so that a time to grow and a time to plant can again come. Now, I take contentment in the fact that even the two witnesses are told not to go to the world until the church is back in order. So if even they, who are not on the scene yet, as far as we know, are told to cease and desist trying to preach the gospel around the world, then anyone who tries to do that is in vanity, vexation, futility, and frustration. And even within the church, there is no way to reach the people in the church by anyone with a proper message unless and until God inspires and shows where he is going to do that. And to date, he has not done so, has he? There is no place that our eyes would turn as a church overall to look and see if what we see happening is of God. There's no place that we're compelled to look. People wander about, as Amos said they would, seeking spiritual food in a time of spiritual famine. God has decreed that this is a time of famine, and that they will go from coast to coast, east to west, north to south, and not find spiritual food. It is a famine decreed by God. So, in a famine, they cannot find. 
There's only one portion that Amos mentioned, and that's the southwest, uh, when he described where they would go that is not included, and they won't find it there, because I do believe that southwest is where they will ultimately find it. And he carefully words that to uh, reflect that. It was in the southwest, in Pasadena, California, from the beginning in this era, once it moved from Portland, I mean from the Oregon area, where it barely got started, but the bulk of it was done in the southwest. He who did it did not come from the southwest, but he went there. And it even says that the man who comes at the end will come from the rising of the sun, that is, from east to the west, when God gets ready to do the job. So we have to recognize that this isn't a time for growth in terms of numbers and in terms of organization. This is a time for growth individually. A time to determine why we are the way we are and what has happened and why, then do something about it. So you see, recognizing we're, a time, we're in a time of breaking down is very important in order to know how to cope and deal with, survive and thrive within this period of time. Verse 4, a time to weep. And I'd say this is a time to weep. He makes it very clear in Isaiah 54, 55, and other places that very shortly he's going to turn things around. He's going to begin to bless those who seriously wish to serve him. And they will begin to laugh and come to Zion with a high hand, with laughter, with joy, with happiness looking forward to doing and finishing the work of God that the kingdom of God might soon come. So this time of weeping will soon be turned to a time to laugh. But it's not here yet, is it? We haven't been given dear legs yet. We have not been healed yet. We have not been blessed in the ways that God says in all the prophecies that he is going to do, even here at the end time, not just at the kingdom, yet. So if we fight against that, we get ourselves in trouble. It is a time to weep. It's a weep, time for me to weep over the way my mind and emotions work. It's a time for me to weep over how much more I need to seek God than I do. It's time to weep and cry out to God to forgive us and to deliver us soon. So this is a time of tears. This isn't a time of joy. Now certainly we need to be able to find a certain joy in our labor and in our opportunity to serve one another and that type of thing. There can be a certain amount of joy and happiness and contentment, don't get me wrong. But overall, this is a time of breaking down and weeping, not a time of laughter. And the more we focus on what we need to be doing, the less time we'll have to worry about why we don't have what it is that we want. And we all have our want list, do we not? Things that we would like to be different. Things that we would love to perhaps be able to do. We all have those things. But we need to content ourselves that that is for later. I will not focus on that 
and perplex and frustrate myself, but I will be doing what I need to be doing so that when the time is right, I can be included in what it is that God is going to do. He's telling us an awful lot here if we stop to think about human life and what God has decreed that we go through during this life. Do we have health issues? Do we have emotional issues? Do we have people issues? We have all kinds of issues, don't we? And now is the time to learn how to resolve those in peace as best we possibly can and to live at peace with all men as much as possible is the way Paul put it. He knew it wasn't possible, but he said, inasmuch as is possible, do it. Even in this period of time. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now's the time for mourning, so let's get on with it. Get it done right. Mourn for what isn't and what needs to be and get it fixed and then there'll be a time to dance. And when it's time to dance, then we'll dance. But don't worry about dancing so much right now. Look forward to it maybe, but don't frustrate yourself over the fact it isn't yet that time. Verse 5, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. You gather stones to build, and there's a time for those stones to be scattered. The temple is a good example of that. There was a time for Solomon's temple to be built. There was a time for it to be torn down. The temple that was there in Christ's day said, there's going to be a time that whoever gathered these stones, if they're still around, are going to see them scattered, so that there's not one left upon another. And I think spiritually, certainly, it applies to the church as well. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to hug and there's a time not to hug. And you've got to recognize the right time. Sometimes someone's really res res uh, responsive to being hugged. Other times they're, leave me alone, I don't want a hug from anybody. I'm in a bad attitude and I want to keep it. Well, maybe that's the time they need a hug, whether they want one or not. I don't know. I mean, they'll stop getting all that. But there is a time, and there's a time not. There's a proper type of hug, and there's a, pro a wrong kind of hug, too, depending on the circumstance. Verse 6, a time to get and a time to lose. We don't like the time to lose. We like the time to get. But... Sometimes you've got to recognize this, this is a time in which I may lose this, that, or the other thing. And if you recognize that and have the wisdom to understand where you are in life, then it's easier to deal with. Recognize that sometimes God gives and sometimes God takes away. And whatever God is doing is going to be best for you and me. He understands us. He knows us. He ponders our hearts. He determines what that child of God needs. If they need scolded, chastened, punished. He knows if they need rewarded, blessed, 
forgiven, encouraged. And he knows how to do all the above, positive and negative. So he's balancing your life, determining what it is that you need right now. For what? For the future. It would be nice if everything was fun and games at all times, wouldn't it? But that's not the way life is. And if you truly have committed your life to God and you seek Him to guide and direct your steps and to give you what you need to prepare you for the kingdom of God, then there will be times that He encourages you and blesses you. There will be times when He teaches you lessons, sometimes pretty severe lessons. We go through difficulties. And if we understand the process and know there's a time for that, then we will accept it and do what we need to to fix it so the blessings can come back. That's where we are, brethren. The whole church is right there. In a time that we need to be preparing and taking the chastening, the spewing that we have been given so that we can be blessed. And when we self-righteously pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which is probably the biggest problem within the church of God today, is self-righteousness, Laodiceanism. Where we put ourselves above other groups or above other people or assess ourselves better than they are in some form or another, and look negatively upon them. That is one of the, probably the biggest problem within the church. It destroys peace, it destroys contentment and happiness. So knowing the time or end is very, very important to us so that you do what needs to be done at that particular juncture. <coughs> A time to keep and a time to cast away. Verse 7, a time to rend and a time to sow. Here again, we're in a time that God is rending the church, rending the groups. We felt it ourselves right here. A time to rend and a time to sow. Now we look forward to Isaiah 58, do we not? Where it says that those who take their foot off God's Sabbath who share what they have with others, who are willing to give what they have and serve others, uh, will be used to raise up the waste places and heal the breach. And I look forward, as do you, I think, to being one of those who is able to help heal and fix what is wrong in the church first, and then when the millennium comes, the world. That should be our goal and our purpose. But right now is a time to rend and to deal with the remnant, that which is left when the rending is done. Then it's time to sew it back together and be a repairer of the breach or a sower of the rent, or whatever analogy you might want to use. But right now when it's being rent apart, we have an obligation to each other to help each other through this. 
And I hope the words of Solomon that we're addressing today help us understand better how to deal with where we are. And that's really what he's saying, because this whole book is about dealing with life in all its frustrations, because it's full of them. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. And knowing which, when to do which of those two things is a major, major undertaking in life. When should I speak and when should I shut up? And usually it's just the opposite of what you think it is. When you feel moved to speak, it's often the time you really ought to be shutting up. And then there's a time when maybe you don't feel like you should say something, but that might be the time to speak. Now, you won't always read it right, but there's where we pray for understanding and wisdom and guidance from God so that we will know when to emote and when to emote. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. Is there a time to hate people? No, I don't think that ever comes around. There's a time to hate evil. That's any time. There's a hate, the time to hate sin when we see it. But God does not hate sinners. He loves sinners. He just hates the sin that they perpetrate. So if we hate someone, we are ungodly. It is not godly to hate anybody. So don't take that and think, well, I, I have a time to hate you uh, because of what you did to me or what you did to so-and-so or what I heard or what I thought or what I fantasized you might have done. And because I imagined it, it must be true, <laughs> you know. It's always time to love every human being there is. And it's always a time to hate the evil that we so often perpetrate. A time of war and a time of peace. That just comes. It doesn't matter what you do, sometimes war breaks out. Peace doesn't usually break out, it has to be made. But war comes easily in the human frame whether it be in the world, on the international scene, or in the church, or in personal relationships. War comes easy, and it happens. And there's a time of peace. When war occurs, it's time to start making peace, and blessed are the peacemakers. God does not like warmongers. Verse 9, What profit has he that works, and that wherein he labors? He says, there's a time for all the above. There's, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad. There's going to be difficult times, there are going to be better times. But what profit do we have? He goes back to this same old bone. <laughs> We're human beings, and you go through all these things, but where does it profit you? And he's got to get back to the thought pretty quick here about, you're just going to die. Then what? What good did it do to go through all you went through on this earth? 
I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Now from Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, God pronounced curses upon the land and upon the people. And by the sweat of your brow would you work to produce a living with thorns, with thistles, with weeds, with rain not in due season, with drought, with famine, with wars, with all kinds of frustrations that beset us as people. That curse has never been lifted for man or woman, for human beings. We are still living under that curse. Now, God is going to lift it in increments. He is going to lift it very soon for those who in this evil, wretched world, and the system which there is a time to hate, and the system we have today is to be hated. The system which will come in when Christ returns is a system to be loved. So if you know a time to hate, it's time to hate everything we see going on around us, basically. And it's a time to look forward to the time when we can love what is going on around us. But the first increment is going to be the spiritual ones, or those who live spiritually and walk according to the Spirit and follow God. He is going to give them the first round of blessings when he gathers gathers the remnant together to set an example to the world as a light on a hill. That's the first round of real blessing from God. I mean, apart from little blessings that we might receive here and there in this time to rend. But when he will bless in wholesale fashion, it's when he gathers the remnant together. He's going to start that blessing with healings, with miracles and signs and wonders. And then people will be attracted and they will come and they will imbibe of the benefits of serving God. That's the first round. The second round is the millennium when Christ will begin to expand that to the whole world and hopefully will be part of the bride of Christ in a time to love and help the rest of the world learn to love as well. Then the third round is when all those people from the past and the world great white throne judgment come up and the evil that they suffered in life through from Adam on down to that time uh, will be dispelled and a time of good, a time to love, will begin to occur finally for them. So God has it figured out. <clears throat> it's been a time to hate Satan's system ever since Eden on down. And he has a stronger hold now than he has any time since just before Noah's flood. So God put this travail upon us. Well, we brought it upon ourselves, and then he pronounced it upon us once he saw that we so richly deserved it. And we have been deserving it ever since, or ever since, uh, in that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and essentially have not followed God in the way that he once followed. We fall short. And even those who understand have trouble living up to the mark. And then they get self-righteous if somebody else falls below the mark rather than helping them get above the mark. So we, we, have, our, we have our work cut out for us, don't we? We truly do. 
verse 11, <coughs> speaking of God, He has made everything beautiful in His time. God created a beautiful earth, and Satan and man mucked it up, and have been ever since. But there's a time when the beauty will be restored. Now, thankfully, we haven't completely destroyed all the beauty of the creation God made, because even in Romans 1, Paul said very clearly that we are to see God through the creation that he has made. If you want to come to know God better, you need to spend some time out in nature, the creation of God, and enjoying and being impressed by the things that God has made. If you go to what Satan and man has made, you know where, you know where people go on their vacations? A lot of them. New York, L.A., Paris, London, Hong Kong. They go to the vortex of the evil of Satan's world for their vacations. Uh, some of the beautiful places God has made. But what should be the focus? God tells us that we see him in the creation. If we go to the places that Satan and man have built, we see sin, we see uh, clashes of humanity, we see, we see sin and sickness. You don't learn much about God in all the venues of entertainment that man has put out there, do you? How much do you learn about God going to avoid them? Did you go out and sit under a tree in Zion? Maybe you learned something about God there. You got a better chance, I'll guarantee you that. He's made everything beautiful in his time, and there's still a lot of the beauty of God around despite everything that Satan and man has done. But it's going to get worse, and a lot of the beauty that we still see is going to be destroyed in the next few years. <clears throat> also, he has set the world in their heart. The world is set in people's hearts. The way of Satan, the way of the world around us, it's set in there. That's why our minds are deceitful and desperately wicked. They're set on that. That's where the setting is. You know, you've got a heating and cooling system in your house, and you've got a thermostat. And you can set it for cooler or for warm, or warmer. And our thermostat, as a human being, has been set on deceitful and desperately wicked. That's what we are by nature. It's what we have to fight against moment to moment, every day. So that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. He made things beautiful, but our heart is set on evil in one way or another, if... Maybe it's not a particular evil that your heart is set on, but it's set on self. That's the main setting is self. Idolatry. I need to be this. I need to do that. You need to leave me alone because I'm I. And you need to be nice to me because I'm I. And so we have difficulty finding out what God is doing to the ends of the earth from the beginning to the end. To see the whole plan and purpose 
that is here. If it's just the futility of human life, why bother? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is the ennui, that is the attitude, that is the approach that really most people have. Is it really doesn't matter, so let's just enjoy. Yeah, the world may be coming to an end, don't tell me about it, I just want to enjoy the weekend. I want to party, I want to have fun. And when it comes, it comes, but in the meantime, leave me alone. I don't want to know about it. So they can't figure out the beginning to the end. They don't know what God is doing. Verse 12, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Just from a physically human standpoint, when it boils down to it, just rejoice and do good. Help others, enjoy the day for what it's worth, make it as good as you can. Because that's all there is. Paul said it, and then they made a song about about it. If this is all there is, then bring out the wine, let's have a party. And also, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. To actually have a job or a farm or a work, gainful employment, and to be able to have food to eat and things to drink, if you can be content in that, that's the best there is in this life. Here's a man who tried it all, and he says, when you sum it all up, just enjoy what you have there and be content with it. What does desiring things that are beyond your means or your capacity to have do to you? It frustrates you. I want this, I want this, I want that. And it'd be better just tell yourself, self, you're probably not going to have that. Or you're not going to have it in the way you want, when you want. So quit frustrating yourself over it. You make yourself miserable thinking about what it is that you want that you do not have. Or what somebody else has that you might want. So there's jealousy. So there's the rich guy in town. What does it do to him if you're jealous of him? Nothing, essentially. Nothing. What does it do to you? Makes you miserable. What good does it do to hate someone? Does it hurt them? Very little. Not much. Maybe none. What does it do to you? It's an emotional frustration. It destroys you. It hurts you. It frustrates you. It doesn't do you a bit of good. And it doesn't do the person that you're hating much harm either. So who suffers? The one who is lustful? The one who is jealous? The one who is hateful? 
They're the ones that suffer. So, if we could learn to be content in the state we find ourselves in, Paul will have been right, and he was right. But it's when we push and push and push to change things, to make things the way they aren't, to have what we want, is how we hurt ourselves and frustrate ourselves. Now, there is a time to push, a time to shove. And that's when you recognize that you are not entirely godly yet. You push and you shove to be like God. It doesn't do any good to push and shove your neighbor. It doesn't do any good to push and shove anybody but you. You can't change anybody but you. You can frustrate yourself because so-and-so is the way they are, but you can't do anything about it, can you? Nope. So you hurt yourself by frustrating over them. When the real goal and purpose would be to push and shove yourself to be what you need to be. Then you don't have time to worry about what somebody else is not. Logical? Yeah. Godly? Yeah. That's the way it should be. And then we can be content in our labor and not frustrate ourselves. That's the gift of God. To be able to put aside our lusts, our vanity, our greed, our jealousy, our envy, our hatred, our malice, and enjoy what God has given us. That is a real challenge because the works of the flesh are all those things. And the fruit of the Spirit yields something entirely differently. Or entirely different. Well, there's your barometer. If you have frustrations of emotions toward others, that shows that your reactions are yet carnal and they are not godly. Read the works of the flesh. Read the fruit of the Spirit regularly. And see what is going on in your mind and in your emotions and then determine what adjustments need to be made because I'll guarantee you there are some that need to be made in every one of us you can't change anybody but yourself so content yourself with that and make the changes you need to make instead of being frustrated over those that somebody else does not appear to be making it's a recipe for frustration verse 14 I know that Whatsoever God does, it shall be forever. Whatever God decides to do is inexorable. It's like the law of the Medes and the Persians. So let it be written, so let it be done. Whatever God decides, that's just the way it's going to be. There's nothing you and I can do about that one way or another, good or bad. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. When God makes up his mind the way something is going to be, you might as well accept it. That's the way it is. Don't frustrate yourself trying to add to it or take away from it. That's what God has decreed. <clears throat> That's His decision.
And God does it that men should fear before Him. That which has been is new, is now, I mean. And that which is to be has already been, and God requires that which is past. He said, you know, you really can't change much, can you? That which has been has been, and that which is now is now. And there's nothing new under the sun. Whatever has been in the past among people and among mankind is going to happen again. What has happened mostly in the past with mankind? Abdication of their right and uh, duty to serve God. They have warred and sinned among themselves and with themselves and to each other. And it's a cycle of selfishness that it gets repeated over and over in every generation. So that's not going to change. And you, if you frustrate yourself over it, are going to be in misery. So deal with what you can deal with. And whatever God chooses to do, He will do. There were people up in Oregon. Boy, that Herbert Armstrong can't be an apostle. He can't run the church. But God decreed that he would. And I don't care how many frustrated people they had up in Oregon, and they had some. God was going to put Herbert Armstrong in charge and move into Pasadena, and he was the one that was going to do the calling work to the world. And nobody could change that. Because God had decreed it and called the man to do that job. There were people who frustrated themselves over that and wrote books about it. Did it do any good? No. Did the man ultimately, in spite of himself, do what God wanted him to do? Yes. Because God had decreed that he would do it and he would be the one to do it and God would work through him to get it done. So anybody who tried to take from or add to that, only frustrated themselves. That should be a warning to us. <clears throat> Verse 16, And moreover I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So no matter how wicked the circumstance, there would be something right there, and no matter how righteous, there would be something wrong there. Because nobody is totally evil, and nobody is totally righteous. So, we deal with the degrees of that, don't we? And we make the judgments about someone's, or our own, righteousness, or level of wickedness and righteousness. But that's God's judgment. And who are we to judge God's servants? He's made it very clear that his judgment is the only one that counts on anyone. And if we try to judge one another, we are idolatrous. It is the height of idolatry to judge negatively or condemn anyone. That is the very peak of idolatry. Because God has reserved to himself as almighty God of the entire universe 
to do all the judging. That's his job. And if you take on that job, that is the height of idolatry. Clear? That's self-worship. I put my analysis, my judgment, my opinion above that of God. I hope we can grasp and understand that in our dealings with one another. But when we condemn, and it says condemn no man, can we judge a right or wrong action? Sometimes. Maybe so, maybe not. We don't know all the circumstances and we don't know the motives. We impute them, but we don't know them. But when we take it upon ourselves to do that, we are endangering our salvation. We're endangering our own standing with God. Because idolatry is the first commandment. And when you put yourself and your judgment of somebody out there, you're putting yourself in the place of God. <coughs> that is at the root of self-righteousness. So idolatry and self-righteousness are the biggest sins in the church of God today. That is what God condemned the church for and spewed it out in Revelation 3. I am, I am rich and increased with goods. My judgment is what counts. I'm better than you. I'm more qualified. I'm more righteous than you. And God hates that attitude with a passion. And he spewed us out with passion. And getting rid of the idolatry and self-righteousness is job number one. That's the biggest challenge before you and me. And no matter how righteous something appears, there will be a certain amount of wickedness. And no matter how wickedness, wicked something appears, there will be a certain amount of righteousness. It's when we make the judgment of what is there that we start getting ourselves in trouble. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So he says there's going to be righteousness, there's going to be wickedness. Nobody is perfect. So I, Solomon, he says, in my heart said, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. It's not my job. It's God's job. Verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. He says, I sat back and watched, and I just wonder if everybody is going to realize that really they're like beasts. What do the beasts do? Some of them rip and tear other beasts. Some eat grass and try to keep from being eaten. 
But in many respects, we're like the animals on the planet. We do what comes natural to us. We do what we want to do. We do what our instinct, if we have it, or our natural carnal mind wants to do. Selfies are big these days because people are focused on themselves. For that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts. Even one thing befalls them all. As the one dies, so dies the other. And that's really the focus of what he's saying is not that we act as much like beasts, which we do, but it doesn't matter whether you're man or animal, you're going to die. It's just going to happen. Might happen today, might happen tomorrow, might not happen for a few years yet. Even if you're 20, it's only going to be a few years. Because the vast majority of the population of this earth is going to die in a few years. Only a few will go on into the millennium, perhaps a hundred million out of seven billion or so now. That's all. So most are going to die soon, no matter what age you are. Or a few are going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, which is essentially the same as death. That which is physical and carnal drops away and is changed to spirit. Are we, do we, can we recognize and realize that? So if you're going to die like a cow or a lion, uh, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to think? How is that going to affect you? He says, I wonder if people really grasp that they're going to die. I knew it when I was 18 or 20. I mean, I, I sort of knew it, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I mean, I was strong and young, and I was going to change the world. And now I'm old, and I haven't changed it. And now I am beginning to recognize that I'm going to die. I'm beginning to come to terms with the idea that that is an eventuality. Can't escape it. Do we learn it young enough to do anything about it in a meaningful way? I think that's what he's driving at. Are you going to come up, be aware? Are you going to realize that one of these days you're going to die and it doesn't matter what you've done or who you've known or what your memories are or what adventures you had? They're gone. That's it. As one dies, so dies the other. Yea, they have all one breath. So that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all his vanity is temporary. What more good are you than a dog? A dog croaks, it's over. You croak, it's over. Do the same to each one. Throw them in a hole, dirt in their face. It's done. Finished. That's it. All go to one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. We think we're immortal when we're 16 or 18, and nah, 
Some of those that are 16 or 18 die in a car accident or diabetes or whatever gets them. And they turn to dust a lot quicker than they anticipated that they would. Who knows the spirit of man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? Who knows? How many people understand the difference between the mind, the nature, the spirit of man as opposed to animals? Very, very few. There's not an immortal soul that continues living when you die. You don't get uh, uh, reincarnated as somebody else. You die. The dead know nothing. They have no awareness. They're not in heaven or hell looking up or down at you. They're dead. They know nothing. But there's something that is different between your mind and the mind of a dog or a goat or a lion or an osprey. There's something different. They react entirely by instinct, by what's been programmed into their little brains. You can think. You can plan. You can change things. You can do things they cannot do. And when you die, there is a recording, a tape, of your life, of your character, of your acts, of everything about you that goes upward to God. It isn't active. It's silent. It's, it's, like, it's like having a cassette. I can't think of a, a disc, whatever is the latest, a digital recording of some kind, without a player. So it remains quiet, inactive, until the time of the resurrection. Then a spirit body is put together with that recording of you and comes to life again. There are all kinds of doctrines that are satanic about reincarnation and that kind of thing that are untrue. What reincarnation is, basically, is a demon lived in this person a thousand years ago and inhabited them, and then came and inhabited someone else in this age. That's why General Patton could look back at certain battles of the past and think I was there. Now, he misinterpreted that is that he literally himself was there and had been reincarnated as General Patton. And that's not what happened. What happened is that demon had been at that battle site inhabiting a different person who was there and they died, either at the battle or later, and that demon went on to inhabit George Patton. And the demon could remember those battles. He'd been there. So it wasn't reincarnation, it was infestation. It was possession, or heavy influence, at least. So people have dreamed up this reincarnation thing, and all it is is satanic demonism. The Mormons are real big on that. They get baptized for the dead and they get reincarnated all the time. 
And uh, then they, well, let's not even get into all that. But the pagan, other pagan religions are the same way. But Herbert Armstrong explored this thought and wrote a whole book on it about the human spirit. And it would be good for you to read uh, if you haven't. Because there is a difference between our minds and the minds of beasts. And Solomon puts it together here. He understood that there is no future for an animal. It goes into the dust and it's forgotten and it rots. You go to dust and you rot, but there is a recording made and preserved of you that goes up to God, even though it's inanimate and quiescent at the time. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? You only live for a certain period of time in this period of time God has given for man. Anywhere from birth up to 80, 90 years or a little more in some cases. But generally about 70, and it's a little higher right now because uh, of lack of war and famine and, and uh, diseases and so on, although they are increasing. So it's going to start dropping precipitously in the average lifespan. But you only have a finite amount of time. And rejoice in the life that God has given you, Enjoy the day, enjoy your work, eat, drink, but don't bother yourself trying to be or have what is essentially impossible for you. You're not going to win Powerball. You can buy a few tickets if you want to. Somebody will, but you know the odds are pretty bad. They're pretty bad. Millions and millions. Hundreds of millions, I don't know. Lots of millions to one. So, people buy those things in the hope that they can have a life of idleness and ease and wealth. Get over it. Enjoy the life that you have and be content in the state that you find yourself in. I remember a time in my life many years ago when they were sending me a lot of those uh, Ed McMahon stuff. If you, you know, this, this uh, well, the word won't even come to mind. The, the, the contests, the, the awards, the, you know what I'm talking about. I'd fill those things out. Man, you had, to, you had to go through and read their whole spiel so that you didn't leave out initially one spot in that three, four, five, six page document. Had to read all the fine print and be sure everything was right or it would be rejected before it was even put in the mix to win whatever award it was. $666,000 a month for life, you know, or a year, whatever it was. I don't even care. But I went through that when I filled those things out. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe, come on, I'm just wasting my time. I could be doing something else rather than frustrating myself with that. That's what he's saying. Is realize there's only so much here. There's only so much you can do. So don't frustrate yourself 
burning the candle 20 hours a day trying to get rich, and it probably won't happen. Now, there's a difference between not letting your candle go out by night, a la Proverbs 31, and frustrating yourself working 20 hours a day trying to become wealthy. Totally different motivation there. Proverbs 31 is a metaphor about a woman who is doing godly things and putting herself in living a godly life and burning the candle for that purpose. That is a godly, honorable purpose and one which is worth losing sleep over. But just getting rich and fulfilling your vanities and your lusts and your greed is not worth it. So enjoy your lot in life. You weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth and you're not likely to find one. And you'll spend all your health seeking wealth and then you will spend all your wealth seeking health. That's the way it works in this world. So he says, hey, just back off. Find pleasure in your job and your family and your work and be content with what you have. Doesn't mean we shouldn't work. He says work and enjoy it. Doesn't mean we can't get ahead a little here and there. It's not wrong. But when we have lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy in the mix, then that creates frustration. Now he's going to get to higher purposes here before he's done. But he keeps chewing on this same bone about the futility and the frustration that we put ourselves through as human beings for no good reason because whatever it is that we're able to accomplish, whatever wealth we might have had, whatever adventures we might reminisce over, whatever beaches we might have laid upon, will all be forgotten when we go it's all over, all done. The memory is forgotten. That's what he's trying to get across. Now, there is a higher calling. There is a better reason for living, and that is because the Spirit does go upward to God if we're a human being, and it is something that will be reckoned at at a time of judgment. And there will be rewards for having done good while we're on this earth, treasure in heaven, and seeking first the heavenly things rather than the physical things. Physical things are good to enjoy to a point as long as they're legal and okay and right and so on and so forth. But treasure in heaven is the only thing that's going to do you any good. Treasure in the bank, yeah, the feds are going to get it, the bankers. Treasure in heaven, they can't take away from you. Doing good to your neighbor, loving each other, helping each other. Pennies in the bank of heaven can't be taken away. Unless we pat ourselves on the back like the Pharisees and say, oh, I have done such wonderful works and I've helped so many people and we become self-righteous about it and worship ourselves for having been so good as a human being and serving. Then the reward in heaven is lost. The minute we become proud and vain instead of humble... It's lost. 
I had an experience this week I think I'll relate to you. I had a, a lady who has been studying uh, our sermons, and she's been reading a lot of books about uh, prehistory in America and about all the things that we have learned from the Bible and from geology and geography and, and that God has revealed about this area and what is here. So she came visiting, and uh, we spent Wednesday out going through petroglyphs and, and different sites and seeing some of the things that you have seen. And uh, I didn't know how much impact that was having. We wound up the day on the site that I believe is probably uh, very likely the site of the original Jerusalem. I think it's within a half a mile of there in any case. But it's the best site I've found as a, as a, uh, a candidate so far. But she stood there and she looked out at the mountains and the ones that go down into Zion. She looked at where maybe the Mount of Olives. And she made some remarks about it. But I got an email, I mean not an email, a text a couple days later yesterday. And in it, I don't think she'd mind me sharing this with you. And I won't tell you who or where from or anything, but I don't think she'd mind me saying this. She texted yesterday, I guess it was the next day, but yesterday she said, out of all my life was the best day that I have ever had as I stood where Jerusalem, the real one, may have been and looked at all the things around me. It made it the best day I have ever experienced. That touched me very deeply. And all I could text back was, it's very humbling to have been a guide on such a day. That God had showed me things that I could show her that impressed her about what God has done and will do. I made my day, made my week, <laughs> to see her see some of the things that we have come to see. That is to me exciting. She wasn't a billion people. She wasn't a million people. She was just one. But how gratifying to see the light bulb come on in one human mind and see what God is in the process of doing. So the futility of this life Solomon talks about. But what there is beyond is something to get excited about. And I think that it's good for us to review and revise, think about what this life is all about and realize that it is vanity and vexation and futility unless there's something more. So it's worth going through Ecclesiastes and reviewing the futility that man finds every day and that we ourselves have experienced and realize there's got to be more than this to make it worth it.